0: Howdy, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter. Um, This is a series we do every Wednesday evening. Uh, Well, I missed last week, so I'm sorry about that. But it's focused on the application of reason, reason reason-based epistemology, uh, the art of non-contradictory identification, the ethics of individualism, and the metaphysics of a not-crazy person. Uh, And our goal is uh, to have you and I survive May I say thrive during the fall of Rome, maybe even help stave off the fall of Rome a little bit, or at least keep the torch of liberty burning in our own houses. That's the plan. All right, so for tonight's show, tonight's show might actually be long because I missed last week, so I have a backup of stuff to talk about. But tonight's show on our agenda, we have pedagogie, yes, I'm pronouncing that that way intentionally, a case study which might actually be longer than I intended. We're going to look at just a little, just take a little bit of poison with your crypto. We're going to ask the question, is Elon Musk a white pill? And we're going to reveal the fact that your friend is in fact a robot. So um, before we do that, if you're new to unsafe space, welcome. In addition to dangerous thoughts, which is this series, we have a lot of other series. We have 451 degrees with Alex Maselli, which is about censorship. We have great reset, which, uh, which is hosted by Ian K, AKA Comics Division. That's free to everyone except for Klaus Schwab to watch. Um, and on Mondays, we have a live show called Narrative Dissonance, where we uh, bring on a panel of journalists from outside the mainstream and talk about uh, what topics, what stories the mainstream is misleading us on, what they should be talking about, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then on Fridays, we have our genetically modified version of the Token Minority Report, which is hosted by our lovely producer, Beverly. uh, And it's produced by some random, typically incompetent intern. So um, also before we start, think of someone you haven't shared unsafe space content with. I'll give you a moment. Good. Now go share content with them. Um, You can do it privately. It's okay. Um, If you haven't already, please make sure you're subscribed on Utreon, YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, somewhere. And finally, please consider heading over to unsafeface.com You can watch all our shows there. We never censor ourselves on our own website. Um, there's plenty of opportunity as well to rid yourself of that pesky and useless fiat currency before it comes worthless. Um, and if you do that, you can get yourself on our Discord server, get your name in the credits. You can get a grenade or at least a grenade-shaped mug. Okay. All right. Shout out to the folks in chat. Good evening. Um, let's dive in. Okay. <sighs> This first topic this first topic is, is a doozy, and it's disturbing. All right, so sex education uh, for children has been in the news a lot lately. Much of it was sparked by Florida's uh, alleged don't say gay bill, which doesn't say gay anywhere in it. Um, and I talked about this on the show on March 9th, I think. Um, so if you missed that, Beverly can paste a link in chat. But I also talked about... Sex Ed Summer Camp, which was uh, being hosted for, uh, I think, third to fifth graders, which was being held in a beer hall in downtown Indianapolis this June. Um, and since then, since all of, since all of that, on, on the 9th, uh, Chris Rufo has been exposing uh, a lot more stuff. He exposed a Disney All Hands meeting at which employees openly pushed uh, for the sexualization of children. He's been cataloging a bunch of stories and numerous uh, Disney employees caught in sex crimes over the past decade. One ex-Disney Cruise uh, officer, security officer, who claims she was told not to report molestation. He's been calling out CNN's Oliver Darcy for painting conservative concerns about Disney as a QAnon-level conspiracy, even though CNN had been reporting on the problem uh, for years themselves. here's, Here's something that he shared. Here's a story from 2014 that says theme park employees caught in sex stings, child porn arrests. And of course, in this article, I think it was this article, they they recommended CNN recommended an increase in sting operations to catch so many more sexual predators. Uh, but here we are today saying, hey, Fox and right wing media attack the entertainment giant as a woke company and doctorating kids. It's just a conspiracy. Uh, my how times change. So... Um, Look, it's easy to react to this uh, these kind of stories with a simple disgust factor, uh, which you know, is is warranted and may be effective in the short term. but it, I think this is also a good opportunity to take a look at a couple of the pedagogical strategies that are used in schools in order to do this stuff. And maybe we can see if we can detect how the indoctrination is being performed. So we can spot it in the future. Um, maybe in times when the content isn't as viscerally angering and, uh, and the evil isn't quite as obvious because they do use these things for just about everything. So, uh, I happened to run across this company. Let me show you, let me show you their website. Uh, da-da-da. let me share my screen. I have too many tabs open. I gotta scroll all the way down to wherever this tab is. Sorry, guys. There it is. Okay. Here's Here's a company called Well Beyond Academics. They are indeed well beyond academics. Um, I actually, sometimes when you're a parent, you know, you uh, you get to hear things from kids in your kid's circle and other parents and that kind of stuff. I actually got to hear a middle school student who received instruction from this company. Uh, the school hired the company to come in and teach a unit. Uh, I got to hear her tell her parents all about their, or at least the beginning of it, I didn't hear the whole thing. Um, but, uh, this, you can see if you, if you're just listening, the website just says building a healthier generation, one community at a time. Obviously this is here in the Bay area, but these, these organizations exist all over the country and many schools rely on these organizations. Uh, they consider them specialists to come teach the kid about stuff that falls outside of the regular classroom instruction, like suicide prevention, drug abuse prevention, and sex education. Uh, and this is a huge vector for ideological subversion. So um, we can go, to, let's go over to the about page. Here's the about us. Here the founders. Um, and now you, if you when you first read this, it kind of sounds okay. It says WBA was founded by mental health clinicians who have been working with young people for more than 20 years based in education and experience in mel- mental health and wellness. Okay. That sounds right. And then you look at Jen here, Jennifer Krasner. She doesn't sound too bad. Her her bio says, oh, you know, uh, mental health and wellness. That's her thing. Um, the last sentence here gives us a little bit of pause. Um, I'll just read it. Jen believes that in order to truly raise a generation of successful, healthy individuals, we must first lay a strong foundation, educating the entire child for life outside the classroom. Eh, It's, that sounds like it maybe is a euphemism for programming good NPCs, but that's not, I mean, it wouldn't look like a red flag probably if you're just kind of naively looking at this stuff. Um, And of course uh, what this really means is that you need to have the right, quote, right cultural values and political stances. That's what they mean by uh, the entire child for life outside the classroom. That's what's meant by that. And if you've, if you're a parent, you may have noticed a lot of schools, uh, even private schools really advertising their, um, Activism, like advertising, building activists and creating activists out of their students. So that's Jen. Then you have Janine. She's the co-founder. Um, Janine actually might get herself canceled soon. Uh, if you look, <laughs> she, she actually says, uh, where is it? From the analysis of cognitive development in preschoolers to the investigation of how exercise and nutrition directly influence positive outcomes in overall physical health. Janine is well-versed in transforming research into practice. So this will get her cancer to canceled at some time. Sometime. Exercise and nutrition, as we all know, not allowed to say those have anything to do with health. But uh, towards the end here, she talks about social and emotional challenges prior to entering high school. Now, this phrase, social and emotional, um, obviously it could just be two words strung together with an and, but it's most likely... It's most likely referring to social and emotional learning, which is a thing. Uh, Let's see if I can pull this up on screen. Uh, I'll show you what, we're not gonna go through social and emotional learning too much, but here's the kind of premier organization, Um, CASEL, uh, C-A-S-E-L. And castle uh, stands for collaborative social emotional learning. They're kind of the authority on social emotional learning and you know social emotional learning when you when you uh, when you hear it just sounds like eh, it's kind of a modern pedagogy that takes into account individual psychiatry. It doesn't seem actually that bad like oh, you know, mayor, you know individual psychology like okay, maybe. Maybe there's ways to get kids. You, you could you could totally, based on the name, think that it's something fine. But of course, like like most things now, it does have critical theory woven into it. Let's go to the fundamentals of SEL. Let's just read what they say. Let me make this bigger for you. We define social and emotional learning. Now remember, this is like the the main source that educators go to to learn about this. We define social and emotional learning as an integral part of education and human development. SEL is the process through which all young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, manage emotions, and achieve personal and collective goals, feel and show empathy for others, establish and maintain supportive relationships, and make responsible and caring decisions. Now, I can pick on some of these words for philosophical reasons, but I think a normie would say that doesn't sound too horrible yet um there are there are some issues there but they're subtle second paragraph sel advances educational equity Mm, equity is a buzzword and we all know what that means and excellent through authentic school family community partnerships to establish learning environments and experiences that feature trusting and collaborative relationships rigorous and meaningful curriculum and instruction and ongoing evaluation these people are very good at. Bullshit. SEL can help address various forms of inequity and empower young people and adults to co-create thriving schools and contribute to safe, healthy, and just communities. Now, of course, by just communities, they mean socially just. Uh, They don't mean actual justice. So some of this critical theory stuff is is woven in. Um, In fact, you can go. uh, Where's the top of this here? Let's go to, look at this question. Oh, look, how does SEL support equity? Hmm. Look, this isn't so ideologically neutral. All right, and you can see here critical theory is built right in this. So we don't have to read this, but this is a whole page about how equity is built right into this thing um and their focus on equity. And of course that's not surprising because most of the people graduating in the humanities departments of from universities over the past several decades have been indoctrinated with critical theory, postmodernism and every anti-enlightenment philosophy you could possibly imagine and have it an, they've got it woven into all of their uh, all of their practices. So um let's go back actually to let's go back actually to the other company. Well Beyond Academics. All right, here we go. Uh, These are the the founders that we talked about. Of course, of course, it's middle-aged white women, but separate separate issue. Let's go back to the homepage for Well Beyond Academics. And let's just um, look at the programs that schools can pay this organization to bring into their school. Uh, PREP Prep Beyond sexuality education uh the tagline is we take things importantly not seriously know beyond substance abuse substance use prevention when you know you know and lift beyond suicide prevention so let's let's obviously let's look at this prep thing the tagline as i mentioned is we take things importantly not seriously uh I think it's meant to convey some sort of lightheartedness, but it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, is it important that you don't take it seriously? I don't really, I don't actually really understand this. It's kind of contradictory, but I think it's meant to to show, you know, we do a good job, but it's not serious at all. Sex education isn't a big deal. Okay, so let's learn more. Um, a lot of this stuff is kind of vague. I'm not going to pick on the details of it. We can take a look at this picture. This picture's lovely here. I don't know what's going on. These look like fourth graders. Um, And it's kind of creepy to me that the person that was drawn looks a lot like the guy teaching the class. That's kind of, it's kind of creepy, you know, but hey, you know, who am I? I'm just a parent. So, um, anyway, this is, you know, they've got the educators here that are part of this prep program. Now, the student whose story I got to hear part of actually sat in a classroom with one of these instructors. I won't say which one uh, although maybe I should. Um, and uh, I want to take a moment to share with you a couple techniques that they used um, and maybe take a moment to analyze them a little bit. Um, so we can detect what's you know what's going on. Now the background here is there are multiple units for this prep thing over the course of several weeks and a lot of these units are kind of benign they're like you know health or maybe more biology based stuff that you if you're old like me might remember from health class when you were forced to to take health class although we took it later than middle school if i recall but whatever um But my focus is going to be on the one particular unit I heard of, because this is the one that uh, impacted the student the most. The student didn't like it. Um, She felt uncomfortable. And as you would expect, that particular unit was the one that was most graphic on sex and sexuality. They had a wooden penis that they put a condom on. Um, And I only briefly, like I said, I only briefly heard a little bit about how the class began. Um, But even in that little bit, I noticed uh, at least four... I'll say consequences or themes or whatever uh, for consequences of the way these quote experts were communicating to children that I think are worth, uh, worth examining. So some, some we'll look at briefly, but some are going to be more in depth. So let's just give an overview of how this class began. So um, the instructors began this unit. Remember, this is the graphic unit. Um, uh, they began this unit by setting a tone of giddiness they were smiling and giggling, and they said, "This is our favorite unit. We love teaching this unit." That was how, that was how it started. Um, then they required—I mean, to the extent that you can force someone to do something—they yes, required each student to um, to write down on a post-it note something that they'd heard about, um, you know, already that was related to sex that they were curious about. So they write write something down. Um, and of course, uh, these notes get posted on the blackboard in front of the classroom. And then the instructors go through the notes one by one, talking about them, each of them in front of the whole class. Now, throughout this discussion, they frequently and kind of gleefully assured the kids that different is normal. Let's read about, eh, I don't even want to say some of the stuff, right? Um, and as I said, at some point they demonstrated how to put a condom on a wooden penis. And actually, what was one of the striking things about this was it was described as, "This is a super fun demonstration. <laughs> this is my favorite unit, and kids, this is my this is a super fun demonstration. This is my favorite part. Um, come closer if you can't see." They told the kids. Uh, and the student that was telling this was like, "I was in the back. I don't want to see." Um, so let's let's just look at what this. So that's all. That's the overview. Let's break the overview. Let's break that down and see what this communicates to children's just so we can kind of understand what's going on. I think one of the first messages that's communicated in this is that privacy is passe. And this is this is communicated um, partly through tone, right? The instructors begin this unit with with glee, as I mentioned. Um, And from what I can tell, they're actually kind of giddy, right? It's our favorite unit. We love teaching this unit, right? Um, And, you know, the student that was telling the story said, she was talking to her parent, she said, uh, unprompted, on her own, what kind of person likes talking to kids about this stuff? Now, that's a legitimate question. Now, maybe... If you asked me, I could probably come up with some innocent motivations, but that kind of job is almost certainly a magnet for exactly the kind of person you don't want talking to your children about sex. Um, And you have to wonder why the adults running the school aren't the ones asking this question and why it's left for a student to ask. So what is the message, uh, what is bringing a tone of giddiness and enthusiasm to this uh, kind of discussion communicate to the children? Now, I would expect the instructors to argue here. I'm trying. I was thinking about this, and I'm like, how would they? What? What? what how would they defend this? What would they say? Um, obviously, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't talk to them. But um, I would expect them to argue. Well, we're trying to combat shame. We don't want kids to feel shame about sex and sexuality. Kids at this age might be curious about the topic. We want them to feel comfortable, openly expressing that curiosity. Um, Now, shame is a a form of negative self-evaluation. We don't want them to feel bad about themselves or bad about being curious. And to this argument, I'd like to point something out that I don't hear often from this lefty crowd that does this stuff. There is a difference between shame and privacy. Now, for most families, maybe, maybe with the exclusion of some very libertine nudist camp families or something, but most families, for most families, sex and sexuality are very personal, very private, very intimate matters. And things can be personal and private and intimate without having a negative self-evaluation. In other words, without having shame, they can be personal, intimate, and private without being shameful. Those two things aren't the same thing. Uh, and parents can, and many parents do, teach their kids that their own bodies and their own sexuality and curiosity around sex are private, intimate matters, not necessarily anything to be ashamed of, but also not for public consumption. Right? For most people, again, maybe not everyone, but for most people, part of what makes special, uh, what makes sex special, is is the intimacy, um, the privacy. You know, sharing a part of yourself with someone that has more significance when it's kind of a private thing, um, and and obviously this has you know some people for some people it's more significant than others, right? But even for very sexually libertine people, their bodies aren't public property. They still have some selection process. They still sometimes swipe left, I assume, right? Um, And it may be, you know, I I would argue that your sexuality necessarily, you know, I I don't like this idea of identity for a whole bunch of reasons, but it may be part of who you are, but it's not how, it's not, it shouldn't be part of how you interact with most people, right? Everyone on TikTok doesn't need to know about your sexuality. Everyone at school doesn't, the grocer doesn't need to know, your teacher, your math teacher doesn't need, it's not part of your daily interaction. It can be, it can and should maybe be a private thing. Now, discussing sexuality And other normally intimate matters with a class of 30 other middle schoolers, middle schoolers, um, you know, and a couple of strange grifters that the school hired. That should feel uncomfortable. That should feel uncomfortable. It's not abnormal for that to feel uncomfortable. And ideally, this kind of factory style classroom instruction doesn't happen at all. Right. Because there's already, you know, I don't know if you guys know, but there is a method to handle this kind of thing. That method, let me look up the name. Parenting, it's called parenting. Um, look, parents should should provide an environment in which their kids feel free to ask questions. They should make sure their kids understand the family's values around sex and sexuality. Uh, they can place an emphasis on the psychological health and individual needs of their children, which may vary from individual to individual. Um, now, progressives uh, who are collectivists uh, Progressives don't like this. And they will argue, well, some parents do a bad job of this. Hmm. I'm sure that's true. not going to argue. But more importantly, their argument is, well, some parents do it wrong. And by doing, doing it wrong, what they mean is that parents do it in a way that doesn't reflect what the progressives consider to be the right progressive values. Which apparently, by the way, in 2022 means... Uh, you know, sterilizing hormone replacement therapy for thirteen-year-old tomboys and irreversible bottom surgery by the age of seventeen. So the progressives want a sex education factory because they don't trust you to parent in a way that reinforces their agenda. That's what this comes down to. Um. So even so, even so, let's assume that the sex ed factory is a good idea. It's not a good idea, but let's assume that it's a good idea to do this in classrooms. Um, they could approach this unit with a little bit more tact, right? Maybe maybe they could make it serious as well as important, whatever the hell that means. But they could say to kids, look, I know it's awkward and uncomfortable to talk about this stuff, but I wanna make sure you have your questions answered and maybe collect answers or que- questions up privately Answer them privately somehow in a way that's not creepy. I don't know. Get individual direction from parents. They could go about this in a very different way. Um, But no. They approach this instruction with a tone of glee and giddiness. This is our favorite unit. And this accomplishes, I think it accomplishes two things. One, it normalizes making the intimate public. And we'll have another example of that in a minute. But it normalizes making what is intimate public. They're not communicating, by being happy and excited about this, they're not communicating that there's nothing to be ashamed of, but that there's nothing to keep private. That's what they're communicating, which is different. Which is different. Incidentally, by the way, you know what, uh, do you know what other populations need to be acclimated to a world without personal privacy? Uh, Prisoners, uh, farm animals, comrades in authoritarian surveillance states and leftist utopias think about brave new world not a lot of privacy or 1984 picky picket dystopia so one thing it does is that it normalizes making the intimate public the other thing it does is ironically i actually think it shames kids who feel uncomfortable cuz it makes it kind of bizarre like you normally when someone's like this is great and fun you kind of feel weird or like well, why am i uncomfortable Right? Why would you feel uncomfortable? This is fun. We love it. And the goal here is to get kids to remove their personal that boundaries for fear of ostracism. Don't be the uncool one who doesn't love talking about this fun stuff. Also, by the way, I suspect that part of their giddiness is simply saying the quiet part out loud. That's 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 a, a suspicion here. Okay. So that's one thing I noticed. Second one. I think one of the things they're doing here is what I would classify as the spreading of a psychological contagion. Let's look back at that post it note exercise. Now, there's already a component here of making what's what should be private public right they're requiring every kid to participate they're inviting them to share you know intimate sexual curiosity with strangers they're putting notes in a spot where everyone can see them they're answering them publicly so that's another component or that's another example of making the the private public but there's also another effect with this post-it note answers uh, exercise. This is a class. I don't know how many kids were in this class because uh, I just I don't yeah I don't didn't get that information. But let's say it's a class of thirty kids. Let's just let's say it's a class of thirty kids. Now, according to studies by David Finkelhar, director of the Crimes Against Children Research Center, one in five girls and one in twenty boys is a victim of child sexual abuse. That's a horrifying statistic, but okay. That means that in an average classroom of 30, assuming there's 15 girls and 15 boys, you might have three girls, and maybe 75% of the time you also have one boy who suffered sexual abuse in that class. They didn't suffer the abuse in the class necessarily, but they're in the class and they had suffered abuse. Now the British Board of Film Classification released a report in 2020 called Young People, Pornography, and Age Verification. And in this report, they concluded that 51% of 11 to 13-year-olds, which is the age for this class, have seen pornography at some point in their life. So let's go back. we got a class of maybe 30 people, right? So maybe, Maybe three to four of these kids have suffered sexual abuse. Half of them have been exposed to pornography already we can assume maybe the ones who suffered sexual abuse also were exposed to pornography but not necessarily so you got at least half the class so long comes your kid let's say you have a daughter like i do along comes you have a you have a kid your daughter is part of a half of the class that hasn't been exposed to pornography or sexually abused so congratulations you're doing a good job um you've been open and honest with your kid when she has questions. You've tried to handle exposure to sexual situations or language in movies or music or whatever in an age-appropriate way. You've been careful. You've generally been a good parent in this regard. And the fact is, going into, you know, at this point, your kid actually isn't curious about the most extreme or grotesque or demented porn hub categories that there are. Your kid's not curious about them because she has no reason to be. She has no exposure to them. And, of course, you're not trying to expose her to every possible thing. There are things on the Internet no one ever needs to see, right? So she doesn't have exposure here. And along comes Jen at Well Beyond Academy, and she gives a pitch to your local school, and your local school board says, yes, that's a great idea. Come teach your benignly named prep program for health and wellness. So after enthusiastically expressing their glee over getting kids to have a no-holds-barred discussion about sex with a room full of middle schoolers, her instructors tell the kids to write down anything related to sex or sexuality that they might have heard about and are curious about. Now keep in mind here, three to four of these kids have suffered sexual abuse. Half of them have been exposed to pornography. Who knows what's going on or being talked about in the homes of your kid's fellow students. But for sure, some of them have heard about and are curious about things your daughter has no reason to be exposed to, zero. And these are what I'm gonna gonna call psychological contagions. These are behaviors or kinks that no kid needs to be, should be exposed to. But tragically, some of them have been exposed to. So all we have to do is assume that some kids have been inappropriately exposed to stuff. And it might be a high percentage of kids based on the stats I gave. And now those kids are going to write down some of these things on post-it notes. And they're going to stick them on the chalkboard in front of the classroom. And the instructor is going to gleefully read them all aloud and talk about them all. Because remember, this is this is her favorite unit. Now look, we just went through two years of apoplectic paranoia, trying to not spread a virus that kills less than 1% of the people who contract it. We socially distanced, we wore masks, we slathered hand sanitizer all over everything. Some people sprayed packages from Amazon with alcohol forced their kids to get jabs that hadn't even gone through the full FDA approval process, let alone any longitudinal studies, all because we didn't want to spread the coof. And yet, when it comes to psychological contagions like exposure to sexual abuse and hardcore pornography, we literally invent ways and pay people to spread these contagions to uninfected children. And we brag about it. We pay them to come do it with a smile. Now, look, like uh, like Katanji Brown Jackson said, I'm not a biologist, but hey, maybe we're focused on the wrong disease. And maybe in this case, the healthy really do need to quarantine. So, by the way, if you're uh, if you're sending your kid to a public school and and this happens in private schools, too, but if you're you know, you might want to be really, really careful About what their health curriculum is, especially if they're bringing, you know, when I went to school, it was like, you know, the history teacher got roped into doing the unit about sex education and didn't want to. Now they're hiring, there's these specialists that this is what they love, this is their job. They've infused uh, these programs with their ideology and they're gleeful to come in and indoctrinate your kids. You might want to be careful about that. Okay, let's talk about a third concept this program is instilling in kids. You see this one in other areas; it's not just a sex education thing. And this is a concept I'm going to call statistical equity. And this one, you you'll recognize. We um, all pull this up. We've all seen this stupid cartoon, right? This is the equity—the difference between equity and equality—cartoon. So on the left, this is equity; they all have, or sorry, the left is equality; they all have uh similar height boxes to stand on on the right now it's equity the outcome is the same they have different height boxes we've all seen this um now like most bad philosophy this kind of stuff is is dressed up to look reasonable when it's presented to the public they put a hell of a lot of lipstick on this particular pig the pig of statistical equity but let's look at what's really going on here now Remember when I described that, um, when I described that the class and and what they were doing, and especially going through the post it notes, um, one of the feel good mantras that was being repeated by these groomers in charge was different is normal. Different is normal. Now, uh, I'm mostly a normal guy. Uh, But, you know, ever since growing up in the 80s, I've always had an appreciation and maybe even an affinity for kind of the aesthetically divergent subcultures, right? I like the punk culture and the goth culture and the weirdos like David Bowie and Bjork, right? Even the throwback communities of the nineties, like the swing dancing craze people, people who still wear fedoras, you know, it's not always my thing, but I, I have an appreciation for it. I, I think it's fun to have around. I like it. Um, I don't necessarily get into it all, but I, you know, I'm cool with, I'm cool with that. And I always took phrases like "different is normal" to mean, "Hey, treat every in- every individual like a human being, um, you know, regardless of how many, you know, metal piercings they have, or whether their clothes are from the 1920s, right?" And maybe a more nerdy formulation of this, in nerd speak, is learn to appreciate statistical anomalies. Okay. But in retrospect, I'm not sure that's what was ever meant by different is normal. It's not what's meant now. Uh, Because, of course, if something other than that was meant, they would have just said the other thing. They didn't. They said different is normal. Take people at face value. That's what they said. And now it's being said more loudly and more vociferously than when I was a kid by far. So let's take a look at what this actually means. I'm going to, let me share, I'm going to share my screen with you again. Everyone loves math. Don't worry, it's not going to be heavy math, but. All right, here we go. You'll recognize this. Here's a standard bell curve distribution. It's actually called, by the by, a standard normal distribution. The word normals, typically in there. Now, of course, not everything falls into a you know normal bell curve distribution, but many things do, and this is a good way to think about what normal means. Okay. Now, in the exact middle, I think you can see my mouse, right? Or maybe you can't. I'm going to pretend you can see my mouse. In the exact middle over here, you have the mean or average. Uh, and in, in this example, actually, the mean and the median are the same. A median is the most common thing. And This is a nice symmetrical thing where they're, they're equivalent. And down below, you've got you know one standard deviation below, one standard deviation plus of so this 68% block here in darker gray. That's one standard deviation away from the mean. And there's two standard deviations away with 95%, three, 99.7%. Now, what are these deviations from? Well, mathematically, right? They're the mean, or in this case, also the median. But there's another way to think about standard deviation in non-mathematical terms here, and that is as a degree of normalcy. A measurement that lies within one standard deviation is more normal, you can say, than a measurement that like is way out past three standard deviations. So by more normal, you can think of this as it has more neighbors, it's more typical. It's the expected thing. Right? So if this were, let's, if this height, if this curve were height, for example. Right? You'd have basketball players way out here to the right, over seven feet or whatever they are, and you'd have you know midgets down here all the way to the left. Right? And most people would fall in here. Now, neither basketball players nor midgets fit comfortably on a plane. Basketball players have to hit their heads on things. They have no leg room. Midgets can't reach the luggage compartment. Their feet dangle, probably uncomfortable. I don't know. Because the plane is constructed for a normal range of heights. I don't know what standard deviation they look at. But I'm sure they say, okay, well, most people are in here. And we want to capture, I mean, let's say, 95% of the people. So that's how we're going to build our plane. Everyone else can be uncomfortable to varying degrees. So now, someone who's a clear thinker, if, if, if they're concerned about the actual meaning of words and they hear different is normal they might think of this standard normal distribution curve. And they might reject this idea that different is normal as a contradiction because it very clearly is a contradiction. Normal is closer to the center. Different is out of the edge. Different is by definition abnormal. That's what different is. And just to be clear, note that It doesn't matter what your boundary is for what you kind of call normal. You can say I'm going to call normal one standard deviation away. I'm going to call it two standard deviations, three standard. It doesn't matter what you call normal. If you set it to something and say this is what we call normal, then within that boundary is normal, and outside that boundary is abnormal, which means different. So no matter what boundary you pick, different is never normal by definition. Never. There's only one case actually that I can think of in which different actually is normal, sort, sort of, um, and that's, that's this case. That's the case of a uniform distribution, not a normal distribution. It's completely flat, everything's the same. This particular thing, I couldn't find a good normal one, I didn't want to draw one, but this is the probability distribution of a six-sided die, very few things in the real world are distributed like this, certainly no meaningful human traits have a distribution like this. And in this graph, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing, there's no such thing as different to our normal, right? Every probability here is the same. So there's no normal, and therefore there's no difference. So I guess they're the same in the sense that neither one of them exists. But what does this flat graph remind you of? It reminds me of our equity Cartoon. It reminds me of our equity cartoon. And that's, by the way, that's not a coincidence that it reminds me of our equity cartoon. Remember, one of the epistemological concepts that energizes the modern left is uh, social constructionism. And this is basically the idea that there's no such thing as objective knowledge. All knowledge is a product of social interactions. It's constructed by those interactions. This was popularized by uh, Peter Berger and Thomas Luckman in a book they published, I think, in 1967 called The Social Construction of Reality, a Treatise in the Sociological Knowledge. Sorry, Treatise in the Sociology of Knowledge. Now, when most people hear this, this sounds so outlandish that they assume that either maybe the authors couldn't really have meant this seriously, not like not actually, this is just some sort of thought experiment um, or way that they think about things. Or they think, well, if they did mean it seriously, no one else would take them seriously, right? Certainly no one would try to apply it, but here we are. Here we are. We have middle schoolers being flippantly told different is normal. Why is that? Why? Well, they're trying to reconstruct reality. And whether this is conscious or intentional is not really relevant here. The effect is the same. Keep in mind what they want is equity. But but on a fundamental abstract level. Not just with respect to race or 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 sex or whatever. They want it on a fundamental it, it's a it's a reality hating philosophy, which is why it's kind of a form of nihilism, right? They want this on a fundamental abstract level. on a statistical level, they want equity. They want statistical equity. They don't like bell curves. Pick a bell curve. They don't like it. They don't like any distribution curves actually that aren't uniform because the only the uniform flat distribution is equitable. I'm talking in relation to humans. they might they might be happy with bell curves or, or other things about. It non-human stuff, but when it comes to humans, they don't like any, any distribution curves that aren't uniform because only that uniform flat distribution curve is equitable. Nothing's better or worse than anything else. No matter how you measure it, all the outcomes are equal, and you know deep down, they know reality isn't like this, so what they want to do is train you and your kids to stop seeing reality. That's what this is trying to do. So just like in 1984, remember the scene in 1984 when O'Brien wanted Winston to believe that two plus two was five, right? Simply because he said so. I think there's also a scene from Star Trek Next Generation where some alien species is trying to get Captain Picard to say that there's some different number of lights than there are. I think there's four and they want him to say five or whatever. They want your kids to look out at the world and see uniform distribution when it's not there simply because they said so. And that's why I call this statistical equity. They don't want you to see the truth. The truth is that there are differences between people. Instead, they want to replace that truth in your mind's eye with a lie of uniform distribution. So that's why they insist different is normal. In the same way that O'Brien insisted that two plus two is five, or the aliens insisted that there were five lights or whatever it was. And for the same reason, Because they're trying to socially construct the reality they want, and they're using your children to do it. Now, when it comes to sex, this means that anything is normal and nothing is normal, right? It's a deconstruction, a destruction of normal as such. This is why they have terms like cisgender. Right? You don't need a term like cisgender because cisgender is normal, but they don't want you to think in terms. They want you to think it's all... This is all a flat thing, and this part is called cis, and this part is called that. and they're all they're all equally distributed. They're all just different. There is no normal. Now, an important note here, conflating different uh, with normal uh, is distinct from accepting or appreciating the abnormal or the different. You can appreciate and accept the abnormal, right? When you look at, Non moral attributes, for example, like being different is okay. It's fine. Now, there's still consequences to being different. That's just reality, precisely because you're not normal, right? So, uh, you know, I gave the example of a um, height. There's consequences to, to being having a not normal height. But you can f- even, a dumb example, like maybe your favorite color is a specific shade of puke green. And no one really likes that except for you. I don't like it. But it's perfectly okay if you want to have that favorite color. But even if that's your favorite color, there's probably consequences you're going to suffer, right? It might be hard for you to find clothing or paint in that color. It might be hard for you to buy a car in that color. You might have to pay extra because it's not a normally appreciated color. There might also be some positive consequences. Maybe, you know, maybe a paint manufacturer makes that color by mistake. No one wants it and you get to buy it cheap. I don't know, right? But there's consequences to being outside the norm. Doesn't mean you're bad necessarily, there are consequences. So you don't have to pretend that different is normal or that there are no consequences to being different because there are. You can still accept accept different as different and abnormal, but okay. Now, uh, while we're on this subject, though, of talking about normal and abnormal, another common error is the conflation of abnormal with immoral or less worthy. And you see this a lot. Right? You see people getting offended when you observe that something about them is abnormal, right? Oh, you know, your pronouns are dragon kin and whatever, like, Oh, that's abnormal, right? They'll get pissed off. Now, why are they getting pissed off? Well, first of all, they're making this about morality when it's not, it doesn't, it's not a moral. Well, maybe in that case, it's a little bit crazy, but you know, if your favorite color, it's not a moral thing, but they, they take it morally. And they're mad that you're not playing the social construction game. They're hypersensitive to being abnormal because they've conflated being abnormal with an insult. And your job is to pretend that there's no such thing as abnormal. You're supposed to be seeing the equitable distribution curve or non-curve. And by pointing it out, by pointing out that you're abnormal, you're pointing out that actually, hey, actually there's a curve and you're out here at this end. You're showing them reality. You're holding a mirror up to them. And trust me, they know they're abnormal. So this is just triggering because they've been taught that the progressive thing to do is to pretend for everyone to pretend that normal doesn't exist. That's a polite, nice thing. You can't say that there's a bell curve and they're on an extreme end of it. It's very uncouth of you to do that. So this is why they get triggered. Now, you know, all that said, by the way, I shouldn't have to say this, but just for completeness, there are traits for which normal and moral are properly correlated, right? As an example, uh, it's not normal to suck, sucker punch uh strangers in new york city for fun. you know but people are doing it in new york and elsewhere and it's both abnormal and immoral. so they can be correlated but they're not always correlated. often often they're not. and getting back to sex education, of course some sexual traits may be correlated to morality but not all of them. uh and and actually families might have different opinions about what what sexual uh Behaviors and traits are correlated to morality and what aren't. Uh, Now, of course, the leftists have their own opinion. Zero of them are correlated to reality. Uh, The only bad thing is normal. Uh, In any case, programs like Well Beyond's prep class are introducing a sort of subversive nihilism here. When they spread this crap philosophy, like different is normal. It's kind of a sexual nihilism because, of course, it ignores any consequences of abnormality. If you, if there is no abnormality, you don't have to worry about consequences that breeds more divergent and abnormal behavior, right? And people who manifest that behavior will experience consequences that they're not prepared for because they don't expect consequences because they don't know that anything's not normal. That's why they're shocked and appalled that you're like, you know, I'm not going to use your, you know, weird pronouns or whatever. I think it's odd that you have sex with ducks or whatever the heck they do. I don't know. Like, they are not prepared for this pushback because everything's, there is no normal and everything's different as normal. There's no, it's a flat curve. They don't get it. So they're, they're progressive though. They mean all kinds of statistical equity. Uh, they, they, they want all kinds of uh, statistical equity, like everything, not just for sex. They want nihilism for everything. Every kind of abnormality is encouraged without regard for consequences, except the kind of abnormality that's, that pushes back against their agenda which is, you know, it's just different and wrong. Can't have that. All right. So the last concept that I think this program is instilling in kids, this one is obvious. So I'll be brief about it. Uh, This message here that's embedded in this curriculum is, well, in the way the curriculum is taught as well, is, uh, is that sexual activity is appropriate for you. In middle school you could argue the whole discussion implies that right um and you know there are some sexually active middle schoolers in the world but that's is that the goal i didn't think it was the goal i didn't think we were trying to get more of those um but you know hey the the super fun demonstration of proper condom use kind of explicitly communicates that this is something you need to know how to do it's super fun Especially when the adult is is enthusiastic, right, and gushing about how they love teaching this to kids and how fun it is, it definitely communicates that this is something you need to know, that you should know, it's important. Now, I don't want to sound overly prude here. Um, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm prude, but this <sighs> gushing about how super fun it is to put a condom on a wooden penis in front of middle school kids and being excited and inviting them come to take a look at it and see, get a good get a good view i think this is a form of simulated sexual activity that's being performed in front of children um it's it's unnecessary also uh, putting a condom on isn't rocket science right when a kid gets old enough where they need to know about this at some point in their life they can read the box they can google it they could ask a trusted adult they could even ask a doctor all these things are easy to do they're private and they can be made available on an individual basis when it's a time when it, you know when it's appropriate for that person not as part of a group discussion because you've reached some age that bureaucrats decided means that you're you know it's time for you to learn about sex now keep in mind that uh, although you know <sighs> We find it here apparently now in in 2022, we find it really important to teach middle schoolers about proper condom usage. Most of these kids, they're going to go on to complete high school without ever learning uh, basic inductive or deductive logic or any logical fallacies, how to maintain a budget, how to write a resume or cover letter, how to economically evaluate student loans and make uh, good degree choices, good school choices, how to recognize relationship red flags or personality disorders. They're not going to learn about the principles behind the founding of America. They're not going to learn the fact, even through college, they're not going to learn the fact that communism killed 100 plus million people last century. These are just a few things that they're not going to learn. But we are going to make sure that 12-year-olds know how to have casual sex without getting pregnant. That's super important. Sorry guys, I just don't. I need a palate cleanser. Do you guys need a palate cleanser? Let's do a let's do a little palate cleanser. Uh where is it? Okay. Our cat had kittens the other day. Here is 17 seconds of kittens. Let's not talk about it anymore. Um, All right. I know we've gone an hour, but like I said, I got a backlog of stuff. I'm just going to keep going. Um, All right. Next segment, let's talk about just a little poison in your crypto. Just a little bit. Uh, On March 9th, President Biden issued this executive order. Executive order on ensuring responsible development... Of digital assets. Oh, good. Responsible. Um, now, look, I'm not going to read this whole thing. It's, it's a mess. Uh, what makes Bitcoin, I'm going to use Bitcoin as an example. What makes Bitcoin interesting, valuable, potentially disruptive in a good way? There's a bunch of things about it, but I think, you know, some of the major ones are it's decentralized. No one one entity has control over the system or the rules. So that's good. Um. There's a limited supply. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins. That's it. Then they're, they're done. You can't keep printing Bitcoins. And that's anonymous. You know, you hold the keys to a wallet address. No one has to know who owns that address. In other words, it is outside of government control. It's a private digital currency. That's what makes it interesting. And these are precisely the things an authoritarian government cannot tolerate. They need centralized control to implement their agenda. They need a built-in way to steal your assets. They need an unlimited supply to remove any barriers they might have to spending so they can just print. And they can't tolerate anonymity. They need to be able to push their agenda. They need to be able to punish you or ostracize you financially. So crypto is no good for the government. They do not like it. They've never liked it. It's always been an existential threat. It's why people were excited about crypto, precisely because they viewed it as an existential threat. Now, the main goal of this executive order here is, is exploratory. It's it's you know, he's asking people to write reports on a bunch of stuff. Um, and he's kind of answering, you know, the central theme of here. This is this order is look, it's several pages. Like, I'm not, there's no point in going, and it's boring. Um, but the central theme in here is. Crypto's getting out of control. How the hell do we maintain control? How do we get control that we don't have? And how do we keep it? We don't like this thing. It's out of control. And this includes asking questions like, what do we need to change legislatively to get away with what we want to do? What kind of enforcement tools do we need? How do we make sure we have the power to push our agenda of equity and climate change using digital currency? Yes, it says this right here. The ability to exercise human rights. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, Financial inclusion and equity... And climate change and pollution. Got to have that in there. By the way, this this uh, equity and climate change crap is coming from both ends. You've got the environmental, uh, what is it, social governance score, the ESG score coming from the corporate world, uh, the woke corporate world. And you've got the SEC now proposing rules uh, to enhance their climate-related disclosures for businesses. This is, they're getting you from both ends. So anyway, uh, back to this. <clears throat> uh, you know, he's asking questions like, how do we leverage this terrorism thing to break anonymity? How do we use that as an excuse? He wants basically the Patriot Act for crypto. How do we enforce all the financial regulations we currently have in the crypto world and then add a bunch more? How do we coordinate with other governments so there's no way to control or so there's no way anyone can ever escape our control? We can always control them. We can't let them go to another country. This is a big problem we have to solve. That's what this is all about. All of it. That's all it's about. And there's, by the way, there's an implied answer to some of these questions, which is a wonderful thing called central bank, digital currencies, CBDCs. There's this thing's got lots of studying CBDCs and coordinating with other countries to develop and deploy CBDCs. Now, um, the things that I said made crypto interesting and exciting and valuable. It's not that it, it's it's you know just digital currency. It's it's the decentralized, limited supply, anonymous stuff, right? Uh, they're going to try and sneak CBDCs in as some kind of cousin or related thing to to cryptocurrency. It's not. It has nothing to do with cryptocurrency. In fact, CBDC. Is to cryptocurrency what nuclear bombs are to nuclear power plants? All right. One is a murderous, oppressive invention. And the other one is life-sustaining and gives you cheap energy and is productive. That's what that's what this is. That's what CBDC is. It's anti-crypto. So you think of crypto as decentralized, limited supply, anonymous. Central bank digital currencies are the opposite of that. They're centralized. They're totally under the control of the government. They can supply... What it can be whatever the central authority wants it to be. They can issue as many as they want. It's definitely not anonymous. It's probably going to be linked to this digital ID crap they want to roll, roll out. Do you guys remember the scene from The Handmaid's Tale? Where the main character goes, this is at the beginning. She goes into the store, and suddenly she can't buy cigarettes or anything at the store. Because her accounts have been frozen. That, that's what CBDC is. That's what it'll be used for. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's the goal. They want to be able to control you at the point of purchase. And you can do that with central bank digital currencies. All right, someone in chat wrote that you will own nothing. Yeah. You will own nothing. That's the World Economic Forum thing. What you'll what you'll get, you won't even own your own money. And that's what's important. You won't even that's it's not your money. Money will be a permission slip. To have an interaction with someone. And that permission slip can be revoked at any time. So it's important to pay attention to the US government's reaction to the rise of cryptocurrency. Uh, it's you know unclear exactly how this is gonna shake out, how it's gonna get regulated. Um, but you know, it was unclear at the beginning when crypto first started. No one really knew are they gonna regulate this? What are they gonna do? They were they were, I was probably an optimist and a pessimist at the same time. I was excited about cryptocurrency. But I was also kind of the, the Peter Schiff, a little bit of, I was like, oh, you know, at the end of the day, they have guns and they're not going to let you get it. Yeah, this is cool. Therefore, they won't let you do it. Um, I guess I've always been a curmudgeon. So it was unclear at the beginning how or if it would get regulated. But then it started to get a little bit less disorganized. And it's still, it's still pretty disorganized. But, like, there started to be some regulations. You had major players join the dark side. Like Coinbase and Binance that are like, thank you, ma'am. May I have another? I'll regu- I'll watch them for you. I'll I'll obey your rules. I want to get rich. And then you had new crypto variants and tools come along. Developers started to migrate outside the US. A lot of decentralized finance stuff is in Portugal. And of course, now the government's reacting to all that. They don't they don't like this. So what they want here is a comprehensive. This is this is a search for a comprehensive plan to cage crypto and make sure it's used in service to the state and only in service to the state. They want to build an anti-crypto to replace it. They want to build CBDC to replace it. And I think the goal eventually will be just be destroy actual crypto. Cause once they have central bank digital currencies, they'll say, well, why do you need other crypto? We have this great CBDC thing and it's convenient and the other currencies don't meet all the cool regulations that we are requiring now that CBDC meets, including us being able to, pull a Justin Trudeau and steal your money. I don't have a lot to say about that other than I want you guys to pay attention to it. I want everyone to be aware of it. Everyone in the community to know what's going on. Um, Practice whatever kind of agorism you can in that space. All right. This is my next segment here is a little bit of a positive, I think. It's a little bit of a positive thing. And it's a question, really. And my question is, is Elon Musk a white pill? And there's two reasons why I'm viewing him as a white pill right now. And remember, this is a relative white pill, right? Uh, This doesn't mean he's, you know, Thomas Jefferson reincarnated. But you know, compare him to his peers like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. I think he's a little bit of a white pill. The big news on the Elon Musk front came on Monday when it was announced that he purchased a 9.2 percent stake in Twitter. He became their largest shareholder. Since then, he's now been appointed, appointed to the board of Twitter. Um, and by the way, most most news reports here say that he purchased his stake in Twitter after tweeting a lot about Twitter's impact on public discourse. That's not entirely true. Uh, not that it matters too much, but let me show you. Let me show you some of his his tweets. We all wanna look at Elon Musk, Musk tweets, right? <sighs> Let's see. Man, I just have too many tabs open. I can't find my, t- here we go. Okay. So let's look at these older tweets. So let's look at back at uh, March 24th. This is when he starts going hard on this stuff. <clears throat> he's yeah. He says on March 24th, I'm worried about the de facto bias in the Twitter algorithm having a major effect on public discourse. How do we know what's really happening? On the 24th, he also says, the Twitter algorithm should be open source. Yes or no? He takes a poll. Most people say yes, 82.7%. He does another poll on the 25th. Free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? 70.4% say no. I don't know who this 29% is, but crazy. Um, again, the next day, given that Twitter serves as the de facto Public Town Square failing to adhere to free speech principles fundamentally undermines democracy. What should be done? So he's asking these questions, right? He's also bitching about crypto spam on Twitter, but so these are the these are the questions that he was asking that people were referring to. Now, it's a minor nit, but be aware. He did not ask these questions before purchasing. Twitter stock is 13G which was filed with the SEC, was filed on March 14th. He asked these questions after he purchased Twitter stock. We just didn't know he had purchased Twitter stock. It just bothers me that like every major outlet says this and gets it completely wrong. You just have to read the 13G, March 14th. That's the date he bought the stock. Then he tweeted. Anyway, uh, Elon has been slowly red-pilling over the past few years. Um, but you know he's also friends with Jack Dorsey. I'm starting to wonder how much Jack Dorsey regrets regrets what he did at Twitter. He he has done some weird like apology kind of thing, not apologies, but like he regretted his role in centralizing stuff. I, I can't tell if he is, you know, he was super smarmy on that Joe Rogan uh, interview with Tim Pool and and Jack brought his lawyer. I can't tell if he just kind of is a weasel and was was doing what he was told to do, but didn't like it. Uh, or whether he really believed what he was doing. Um, but anyway, I find it odd that Elon likes Jack, but I don't know Jack personally. so I don't know Elon personally either. So um, an open question here is will will Elon's role on the board and his new stake uh, make any kind of positive change at Twitter? Will they resist? Will the team resist? Is a board seat enough for him to get his way? He only has 9.2%. I mean, he can yell around at the board, but unless he's prepared to be a really active uh, shareholder and do some shareholder activism and maybe even threaten to take over, uh, I'm not sure what he can do. Maybe he can do some stuff. I don't know. Um, is it too late for Twitter? Right, like if If Twitter came back to people who were banned and said, we can give you your account back, would anyone trust them at this point? I mean people have fled and gone to other stuff. Boston Josh says you should live stream to Rumble. We do live stream to Rumble. Um anyway, yeah. So I, I don't know. Um, but one hopeful thing I have is that leftists hate this. And that's always a good sign. Here's a here's an article from Mother Jones. The Mojo Wire. <laughs> uh it's from April fifth. Is that today? Or is that yesterday? No, it was yesterday. Uh, It says, the headline is Elon Musk, one of Twitter's most irresponsible users, is now its largest shareholder. And this writer complains. Donald Trump supporters are now petitioning Musk to allow their fearless leader back on the platform. Musk, who has previously suggested that Twitter doesn't adhere to free speech, (gasps) appears to be teasing some big changes in addition to crowdsourcing an edit button. By the way, the edit button is a. Shit idea. It's a horrible idea. Because you know what's going to happen with the edit, bu- edit button. All of the lying mainstream media are going to go back and edit their crap takes and tweets. Unless it's limited to like 10 seconds later, you can edit. But I mean, like, they, they're going go to go edit. You got to be careful with an edit button. Um. Yeah. So Mother Jones doesn't like it. And at the end, they say... They they give a list of his troublemaking t- tweets. Here's some troublemaking tweets that they they said he. I'm I'm I. I couldn't print this article is just a mess. So I, I printed out these parts of it. Um. He. This is according to Mother Jones, allegedly committing securities fraud. This is an article from t- 2019. But this is how they view. This is how they. This is how Mother Jones characterizes or this is what they characterize as allegedly committing security fraud. Musk tweeted, I'm considering taking Tesla private at $420. Funding secured. It's a joke. Another bad thing he did, joking about Tesla going bankrupt. Musk's funding secured tweet was not the first time he misled investors about the fee. These people are so dishonest. (laughs) He writes, on, by the way, on April 1st, 2018, Tesla goes bankrupt. Palo Alto, California, April 1st, 2018, despite intense efforts to raise money, including last-ditch mass sale of Easter eggs. We are sad to report that Tesla has gone completely and totally bankrupt, so bankrupt you can't even believe it. Mother Jones is going to read an article about it, though. Uh, and also, that the last thing, well, there's other things that they don't like. But one of the things they don't like is he compared, apparently, he compared journalists to despots. He says, the arguments journals are using against the public are word for word the same arguments despots use against democracy. The slow basing of Elon Musk. A couple of my favorite Elon Musk tweets were Free America Now, which he wrote on April 28th, 2020. And the all-time best in July of 2020, Elon Musk wrote SEC, three-letter acronym. Middle word is Elon's. So he's on the board of Twitter. Will things change? I don't know. Could be a little bit of a white pill. It's a little bit good. The other thing I like about Elon Musk lately, the other reason he's a little bit of a, a white pill to me lately, is um, there's recently, there's this video going around about a statement he made about human population. I'm not sure when this video itself was, but he said this several times and this has been circulating Let's watch it just for a second. I think a lot of people think that there's too many people on the planet, but I think there's, in fact, too few. And that the, the possibly the single greatest risk to human civilization is the uh, rapidly diminishing birth rate. And the facts are out there for anyone to look at. Um, but a lot of people are still stuck with, you know, Pearl, uh, Paul Ehrlich's book, uh, Population Bomb. And it's like, ah, oh, that was a long time ago. Uh, that is not the case today. Um, and uh, there's a, there was a massive
1: notch uh, in demographics last year because uh, the birth rate plummeted, and also this year. So, I mean,
0: if you know, no, no babies, no humanity. And, uh, you got to right. come from somewhere. Got to come from um, somewhere. I'll explain why I like this, but before I explain why I like this, the first thing I want to say. Um, is that he's not wrong about the global population. This is surprising to many people because you're constantly hearing about overpopulation as a problem. Um, But he's not wrong. He's just thinking longer term than you are. If you want, I'll put links to this, but you can can look at this Pew Research Center uh, report titled, The World's Population is Projected to Nearly Stop Growing by the End of the Century. They got a bunch of points in here. Uh, global fertility rate is expected to be 1.9 births per woman by 2100, down from 2.5 today. By the way, the replacement rate is 2.1. And they've got graphs showing fertility is falling, that the world is aging. The world's median age is expected to increase from to 42 in 2100, up from 31, and which was 24 in 1950. Africa is the only region projected to have strong population growth for the rest of the century. Europe and Latin America are both expected to have declining populations by 2100. Population in Asia is expected to increase from 4.6 billion in 2020 to 5.3 billion in 2055, then starts to decline. Again, people could change and start having a lot of kids, but this is the this is projection. In the Northern American region, migration from the rest of the world is expected to be the primary driver of continued population growth. I'm skipping a couple. Between 2020 and 2100, 90 countries are expected to lose population. The Latin American and Caribbean region is expected to have the oldest population of any world region by 2100, a reversal from the 20th century. I'm also going to show you this in case you still don't believe me that this could be a problem. This is why Elon's talking about it. He's not a dumb guy, like him or not. Here's a graph. You should look at this graph of global aging. I'm gonna read the text that goes with this graph. This is from uh, a report, Why Population Aging Matters, a Global Perspective from the U.S. Department of State in conjunction with National Institute of Aging, National Institutes of Health, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. This is trend number one that they've got in their report. Since the beginning of recorded human history, young children have outnumbered older people. Very soon, this will change for the first time in history. First time in history. People age 65 and over will outnumber children under age 5. You can see this in this figure. It looks like it's happening. It looks like it was expected to happen before 2020. So maybe it's already happened. I don't know. It's right? This report, I think, is a little bit, a few years old. This trend is emerging around the globe today. Almost 500 million people are aged 65 and over, accounting for 8% of the world's population. Now, why does this matter? Well, old people don't work, but they do collect social security and a bunch of other benefits and they do have health problems. And without a younger population to support them, we're in a lot of trouble. That ratio of, of young people to old people is super important. It's very, very critical. So look, it's he's not wrong. I'm not trying to like scare you. I mean, there's other problems, but it is a problem, and he's not wrong about it, and it it's a problem that we're going to have to face. Um, the second thing uh, I like about this particular clip is, it, frankly, just for me, and maybe this is personal, it's refreshing that he views humans as assets fundamentally rather than liabilities. Environmentalism, uh, you know, I grew up in environmental. Everyone has, has been exposed. It's been the norm. Uh, it has taught us that everything non-human is wonderful and needs to be preserved, that somehow humans spoil everything or a stain on nature. You know, when that when 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 Agent Smith makes that comparison of humans to a virus in Matrix, a lot of people are like, yeah, we are a virus. Right? We make things worse. The standard we use to judge everything is is not human flourishing. It's did we preserve the, you know, blue footed booby baby. On Galapagos, how many, you know three- toed sloths are in some spot like that, those are the metrics we use. And I have the opposite perspective, right? Even though I can sometimes be a misanthrope, particularly when I'm reminded how vile people can be, especially online, um, I fundamentally view humans as positive additions to the universe. With humans come innovation, creativity, art, scientific discovery, a bunch of a bunch of great stuff, all stuff, all things I love. All things that only humans can really do. So uh I do have fundamental long term optimism that humans are at least capable of sorting our shit out. Will they? I don't know. But uh, you know, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, look up the the Simon Abundance Index. There's a twenty twenty one version of this. Um, I'm just gonna read the conclusion of this report because I, you know, it's important to know. We found that humanity is experiencing what we term superabundance, a condition where abundance is increasing at a faster rate than the population is growing. Data suggests that additional human beings tend to benefit rather than impoverish the rest of humanity. That vindicates Julian Simon's observation. That, quote, there is no physical or economic reason why human resourcefulness and enterprise cannot forever continue to respond to impending shortages and existing problems with new expedients that, after an adjustment period, leave us better off than the problem arose than before the problem arose. Adding more people will cause short-run problems, but at the same time, there will be more people to solve these problems and leave us with the bonus of lower cost and less scarcity in the long run. The ultimate resource is people, skilled, spirited, and hopeful people who will exert their wills and imaginations for their own benefit, and so, inevitably, for the benefit of us all. I feel like saying amen to that. Just a great, great quote. So, look, it's refreshing for me to hear a public figure like Elon Musk say, hey, babies matter. Humans aren't a bad thing. So, overall, Elon Musk is not Bill Gates. So, he's a little bit of a white pill. That's my conclusion. All right. Last, last topic. I know we're long. Last topic. The last topic is your friend is a robot. Now we recently played, I'm probably over a month ago at this point. It's a fun game. If you want to go find this episode, I don't know where it is. Uh, Beverly can post the link in in the chat, but um, we recently played a game of spotting the synthetic face. Uh, It was based on this uh, generative adversarial network thing that I described. I, I read a paper about this and we, we tried to guess who the, who the synthesized faces were on screen. Most of us failed. Um, But this next story, we're gonna get something out of NPR. I mean, they ruin everything. At least they're gonna give us something because this is an NPR story. Um, This might help us pass this test in the future, at least arm us a little bit. It turns out that people are already exploiting the AI synthetic face thing on LinkedIn. Let me show you this. Let me show you this article. Share screen. Okay. This article says that smiling LinkedIn profile face might be a computer-generated fake. Say it isn't so. Let's look. Here are a bunch of AI-generated faces for you to look at. All looking pretty good. Look at that. All right. I won't read this whole story, but I'm just going to read a couple parts. At first glance, Renee DeResta thought the LinkedIn message seemed normal enough. The sender, Keenan Ramsey, mentioned that they both belonged to a LinkedIn group for entrepreneurs. She punctuated her greeting with a grinning emoji before pivoting to a pitch for software. Quick question Have you ever considered or looked into a unified approach to message video and phone on any device anywhere? What a horrible pitch. Uh, I'm sorry, I used I coined this term a while ago called assault pitching when I was an angel investor. Which, what a horrible pitch that was. Duresta wasn't interested and would have ignored the message entirely, but then she looked closer at Ramsey's profile picture. Little things seemed off in what should have been a typical corporate headshot. Let's look at the little things, there's some red flags. You know, we're just gonna scroll down. Let's look at her profile. I don't, I'm not gonna read this whole thing because it's about like, hey, this is happening and blah blah blah. And you know, they they talk about a deep fake uh, involving Zelensky. Apparently, there's a deep fake floating around of Zelensky. But let's look at the profile. So, at first glance, Keenan Ramsey might seem like a normal person. Keenan Ramsey, there she is, growth specialist at Ring Central. Messaging, video phone. Okay, but certain details in her photo stood out to the Stanford researcher. So this is what I want to learn. This is we're going to because if we ever play the synthesized AI face game again, I want us to all be a little bit better at it. So here are some telltale signs. Centered eyes. The eyes are centered exactly in the middle of the photo. You can see this horizontal line goes right through her pupils. The vertical line goes right in between her eyes. By by the way, obviously an AI machine could fix all of these but here's where we are today vague background background is blurred out doesn't look like anything in particular missing earring i just don't understand why the ai did this but typically someone might wear matching earrings for a professional headshot yes yes they might hair strands some of the hair seems to blur into the background and some strands appeared to deresta to disappear and then reappear so that's the that's what we're learning there you go. Let's try and stay one step ahead of Skynet, if we can. That's the only reason I'm showing that. Try and stay a step ahead of Skynet. All right. Look, um, I think we can end the show. It's been a, a good, solid hour and a half. It wasn't too long. I was worried it would be too long. I did skip, you know, I did skip through some stuff pretty quickly, but uh, I got to got to everything I wanted to. Don't forget to share this video or any unsafe space video. You can can do it secretly. That's okay. You can share it secretly with a friend. Please double check that you are subscribed no matter what platform you're on. As I mentioned, we're on Rumble, Utreon, Odyssey, YouTube, probably something else I'm forgetting. An enormous thank you to those who continue to support us financially. You can join them at unsafespace.com. There's ways ways to do that and as always i love topic suggestions feedback all that kind of stuff i think the next show that you'll uh that that we're airing is on friday token minority report on friday at 11am pacific and then on monday at 11am pacific narrative dissonance so until then i will see you guys next time thanks for thanks for hanging out Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there.
1: Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may corrupt previous psychological programming. If you encounter any of the following individuals, Please administer government-issued neurotoxin immediately. I'm not sure what the neurotoxin will do because I am not a biologist. CRT is a complex legal theory that is needed to combat the epidemic of racist babies. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't.